0: Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's episode of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. I'm your host, Todd Furness, and I'm uh, just ecstatic to have Jimmy Crumpacker here today to talk to him about a variety of things. Before we get to that, the administrative issues, of course, take priority. Uh, if you like uh, this podcast content, uh, and especially if you like this episode, then please uh, like, share, and subscribe. Um, this is a, a free podcast, and uh, we need all the subscribers we get. Uh, We think it's a unique forum to have a conversation, a thoughtful conversation, and a good exchange between uh, folks around complicated topics, Um, and we think that as a result of that, there's fewer and fewer fora in which we can do that, so this is specifically designed for that purpose. Uh, So we're going to dive in a little bit with Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, welcome. So glad to have you here. We've been friends for a long time, it seems, Uh, even though you're you're a young guy and I'm an old guy, but... uh, (laughs) It's good to see well, you. thank
1: you for having me. It's uh, it's great to be here, and um, you know, I am. Uh, we we are good buddies, and even though uh, I have to say that, you know, we come from slightly different generations. You still beat me badly at tennis last time we played, so uh, uh, you know, so k- kudos playing- to you. That. <laughs> you must have been recruiting me for something. to give up a set? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, 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 I never give up anything on the tennis court, and it was, it was a thorough thrashing. So uh, well,
0: well played by you. Well, thank you for that. Uh, but I'm still probably one in a hundred for you with you. So, uh, so <laughs> tell me, you, you know, you, you're embarking on this new journey here, and I wanted to talk to you about that online and and make sure I had everything on tape so I could hold it against you in the future. <laughs> uh what the heck are you doing you're you're running for congress and and why are you doing it and what gives rise to this
1: uh whimsical idea right so you know i um am a seventh generation oregonian and so we have very deep roots in in oregon and I, i love this state and when i left the state in the early 90s to go to school back on the east coast i was gone for almost 20 years so i I went to Georgetown University, I worked up on the hill for Senator Gordon Smith, and then I moved back uh, in 2012, and the Oregon I moved back to was very different than the Oregon I had left, and so I was looking for opportunities to get involved in the community. I worked um, on four local nonprofit boards, was chair of the board of a major arts organization. I delivered meals um, once a week for Meals on Wheels, and then... A rare opportunity came to run for Congress two years ago um, in the eastern part of the state, which was the only Republican district in Oregon. So I jumped at the opportunity. I got in the race. Uh, This was 2020, and I was running against three candidates with 42 years of political experience, one of which had run for governor in 2018. And I actually took the lead in that race with about a month to go. And I was kind of uh, I was over the moon and then of course COVID hit and our primary was May 19th so you know our last two months of our campaign were I was sitting on the couch um, and I never thought I'd have the opportunity to run again and then um, the redistricting process took place and Oregon went from five seats to six and my house in central Oregon got moved into a brand new district that includes um, the southern part of Portland which is where I grew up so Providence came down and, and gave me another shot to run for Congress
0: well I applaud your efforts and it's a noble a noble cause um, you know on the on the program here we are nonpartisan and uh, because we're really focused on solving problems and we mean that I mean that in all earnestness but Uh, I would submit to you that Oregon is not a state known for its Republican heritage. Uh, So as you're deciding to run, what caused you to choose one side or another?
1: That's a great point. But that's more recent. Um, you you have to remember when I was a kid, we had two Republican senators, uh, Hatfield and Packwood for were in the Senate for 30 years and were considered two of the most important senators. In, in 1994, actually, after the Republicans took over, they were chairs of two of the most important committees. So it's true recently. Um, but You know, and that's part of the problem with gerrymandering is that, you know, Biden won, you know, maybe 55% of the vote in in Oregon, but we only have one Republican out of our seven federal representatives. So this new district is actually a 50 50 district. Um, It's it's very purple. So in an environment like this, it gives Oregon an opportunity to elect a second Republican representative for the first time in nearly two decades.
0: So Oregon is, uh, is famous for Nike, it's famous for uh, great wine, it's famous for lush forests, uh, it's famous for beautiful country uh, and nice people. So uh, what's, your, what's your platform on, on all that? I mean, how do, how do right. you uh, work on that stage? Yeah.
1: Well, so unlike Texas, which is only well, no. So Texas is uh, the federal government only manages about one percent of Texas. They manage fifty three percent of the state of Oregon. So wow. we're talking about thirty two million acres, which are um, managed by the federal government. So they have a very outsized influence on our business and industry. And uh, and when I was a kid, the uh, the timber industry was. You know, employed 85,000 blue collar jobs and was a huge engine of growth and, unfortunately, the federal government no longer allows um, a lot of uh, harvesting of timber on on the federally managed lands so. It would be like Texas no longer allowing um, oil companies to drill for oil. Uh, The only difference is uh, we didn't have the opportunity to fight them um, because, you know, the land in Texas is privately held. So that's a major issue. And then, you know, because my new district touches Portland, um, the issues that have been happening in Portland as far as defunding the police are a major concern, unfortunately. Um, Portland last year set its all-time murder record. Um, Murders were actually up 3x of what they were um, pre-pandemic. Um, And a lot of that has to do with the fact we've lost a third of our police force, um, either to early retirement or just um, quitting outright. So those are a couple of major issues. And then I am focused on inflation. You can probably see my old screens here. I was a commodities trader for 13 years. Um, I used to stare at those for a long time. And so inflation, oil prices, those are things that, uh, that, that really matter to me. And and, and I think are really important to voters because when the price of gasoline goes up fifty percent, that really takes out from people's bottom line.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, let me. I'm just so sorry to hear that the city of Portland, which is such a beautiful city filled with such nice people, has suffered such a great tragedy. And I, I hope that you know Portland gets uh, moved back in the right direction. I, it's it's an important city to the country. Yeah. I, you know the. It occurs to me, I. I was reflecting on this a little while ago. Didn't one of the nominees for the for BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, wasn't she charged for spiking trees?
1: You know, I don't know the answer to that. That that's a great question. But you know, that was a tactic um, during the timber wars in the early '90s, um, which was, you know, spiking a tree is uh, very dangerous because you basically put a huge nail into a tree and then if um if you use a chainsaw to cut that tree down and it hits the nail the chainsaw kicks back and and can and can cause death so that 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 would be a very serious charge i haven't heard that but um for some th- reason I, would, re- yeah. I recall that as being the case but if it is it's
0: horrible if, if it's not i'm sorry to inappropriately repeat it um so let's let's talk a little bit about. Uh, the issues that you're you're focused on, you know, obviously, forestry management is big, land management is big. Um, what else are you looking at, and and what else do Oregonians care about?
1: Well, I mean, clearly, the federal government's management of its budget is a big thing. You know, I look at uh, the thirty trillion dollar deficit as a major issue, um, and within that, an issue that as Kind of shocked me uh, recently, but I've had to learn about um, from running uh, has been healthcare costs um, and and the 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 cost of of Medicare um, and and reading the trustees report um, was uh, it's a real eye opener and you know it's it's 270 pages it's very dry but um, it, it is worth reading just because the numbers are so shocking and. Um, the direction that the trust funds are headed in is is really um, is something that the federal government needs to get its hands around.
0: So you're saying we shouldn't read it because of its pure literary genius, but <laughs> because of the shock value of the numbers. So what did you learn out of that? What what came from that?
1: Um, it it's like shocking. three big
0: takeaways. What would the three big takeaways be?
1: Well, so the the fact that they've been warning. Um, the federal government, the executive, and the um, and the um, and the House of Reps and the Senate, um, the branches of government that are responsible for this, they've been warning them the last four years that the that they're going to run out of money, and now that they're, per- they're predicting that they're going to run out of money in 2026. So that's a huge takeaway. And if you look at the reports, the trust funds not that long ago had about 150 percent of their expenditures in cash. Uh, sitting on their books. That number in 2020 went to below 50%, which is the lowest number um, in records that I've seen. And the records I saw only went back to 1990, but still that is a really shocking number. So let's put this into context for people. In
0: 1965, when LBJ signed the Medicare Act into law, the budgeted amount for the payment of all Medicare costs for that year was $10 billion. Do you have any recollection of what it was in
1: 2021? Uh, I believe it was 926 billion dollars, if my uh, if, if memory serves correct. I, I think, I think you're
0: spot on there, which which would make it about a 30x increase per person in costs. Yeah, uh, and so. One of the concerns that a lot of people have when they see things like infrastructure bills come by and build back better come back and you have some entitlements buried in there's this notion that entitlements will not only remain, but grow and that there aren't, there won't be any controls. And when the, when the build back better was first uh, analyzed by OMB, they said, you know, they took a bunch of stuff out that was supposed to sunset and the senators got a little fussy with that and said, hey, not so fast there, Sabe, because everybody knows it doesn't go away. So as you're looking at the CMS report and you're saying, holy cow, 2026, they're projecting bankruptcy. And my because I've I've shared the same report and studied a little bit myself, one of the other things that's troubling is that the the rate of growth of the cost over the projected term. Is faster than the rate of GDP growth for the nation, so we're we're in a hole and we're digging deeper without funding it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. If you look at uh, you know the Part B annual growth over the last five years, I believe it's been eight and a half percent compared to GDP growth of maybe two point. 8%, you know, roughly. Um, and I think that they're projected. Now, granted, these are projections, but still they're projecting 7% growth over the next five years. Um, and so, you know, they're expecting that by 2045, uh, the cost overruns are going to be 45%. Wow. Which is really shocking. And some, some other numbers that I thought were, were important to share with your audience are that in 1970 one-twelfth of Social Security benefits were the SMI, meaning these uh, Medicare benefits. That number went to one-third in, in 2005. And then after Part D was passed, that number went to 50% of total benefits. Holy so cow! Think about, wow. think about that growth in, in benefits for seniors. It's an incredible uh, growth. And, and unfortunately, it's not slowing down. So put differently, that's gone from 8% roughly to 50%. Yes. I mean, it's shocking. It's totally shocking. Um, And, you know, with, if you look at the demographics that are happening around the world, not just in the United States, we're not, we're not unique, but um, with the amount of retirees that are coming into the system, you know, I, we keep adding More and more, and especially in the United States with the baby boomer population, um, we're going to be adding more and more beneficiaries and and the numbers are not not going to get better anytime soon. In fact, they project by, um, I believe it is in 75 years, so um, 2096, I believe is what they said, um, there'll be a $4.9 trillion shortfall. Wow.
0: So... To put it into perspective, uh, right now for those listening, um, I'm in the baby boomer category, and we are graduating 10,000 people a day to the 55th to their 55th birthday. Okay, so that means that the numbers when you get to 65 are you know bouncing about the same numbers, and so the people qualifying daily for Medicare uh, are is, is a vast number of people.
1: Yeah, Uh, no, I think the numbers and correct me if I'm wrong. I think there's 62 million people that qualify right now. Um, I mean, and that number. Is going to increase and you've seen this over the years, right? Because um, in when the Great Recession happened in 2009, that was the first time where we really saw Medicare, the expenditures exceed. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that income levels and therefore the tax levels were going down. And so because of uh, the COVID-19, I think we're seeing an acceleration of people retiring. Um, So I think that this is gonna have an impact that the trustees didn't even speak about moving forward because the job market right now is so in flux. People are making life decisions, i.e. retiring early, um, and that's gonna have a major impact on on Medicare. And I don't think people really appreciate that.
0: That's a very powerful insight. Very, very powerful insight because I don't think a whole lot of people are connecting those dots. The the correlation between COVID and the governmental response to COVID and then early retirement and then the corresponding uh, cost to Medicare associated with that.
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, if you look at Medicare, which I think is very relevant because obviously the economy has grown significantly since 2000, uh, it was two and a quarter percent of uh expenses of gdp that number is at four percent in 2020 and then it's going to grow to six percent by 2045 and then they estimate eight and a half percent by 2095 so i mean even in the last 20 years it hasn't doubled but it's gone up a significant amount
0: it is kind of like the the uh inverse of the value of compounding interest right (laughs) it's a the compounding we really don't want to see uh if we're investors we want to invest in something with compounding effects if we're we're taxpayers we don't uh, want to see that kind of an impact so it, it begs the question you know in the last cycle there was a really really heated discussion led by senator sanders about this idea of medicare for all and i can't imagine a more uh a more accelerated form of national bankruptcy than, than Medicare for all. I mean, if you're taking a look at what's going on just with the costs of the, of the covered population today, it seems to me if we spread these benefits, it would only be magnified several times over. I, one case in point Medicaid pays about 80% of cost. I'm using rough numbers here. And, uh, and Medicare pays about 120% of cost. So if we if we took and, and my, you may recall, my, I wrote a book on healthcare called The 60% Solution. And the reason I call it The 60% Solution is because roughly, using broad numbers and rounding, 20% of our population's on Medicaid and 20% of our population's on Medicare. So at 330 million people in the United States, your 62-ish million would be about right. So if you've got 100, uh, if Medicare is paying 120% and Medicaid's paying 80 percent then all of a sudden we're giving a lift if we do, if we use medicare pricing to everybody who's receiving medicaid so the prices go up automatically uh by a substantial percentage point now i want to use something I, I one of the things that i think is troubling for people is they really they throw these numbers around like it's it's no big deal right and the running joke is uh uh, one of the senators said, well, I'm just glad that the other side doesn't know what a gazillion a is. Um, <laughs> so I, I like to put this in perspective. I once asked somebody how to think about a billion dollars. Like, what is a billion dollars? I said, think about that for a second. How would you describe a billion dollars? A billion dollars is a million dollars a year for 1,000 years
1: very hard to spend a billion (laughs) dollars
0: unless you're the federal government (laughs) exactly then they can do it without breathing hard but i'm sitting here thinking a trillion dollars and and we're looking at at basically at 926 billion dollars we're just a hair under a trillion dollars of healthcare expenditure last year alone how do we how do we arrest this you know let's imagine you know you get to be king for a day you go into congress and you uh, have the bully pulpit (laughs) You say, hey, I'm sure. Jimmy from Oregon. What what are you going
1: to do? Well, I mean, clearly this is a very challenging uh, problem um, because when you promise um, your citizens certain rights, and Medicare, I believe, is one of those rights that, that has been promised, so you can't take it away from people. Uh, but certainly we can look at um, extremely wealthy people, i.e. the billionaires, um, and say, you know, it, can there be a means test does everybody um who is making millions of dollars or worth tens of millions of dollars need to be on medicare um the other thing that i would look at is um is drug prices um you saw the clear jump we went from a third to a half once um once Part D got put onto uh, Medicare. And so if the federal government were able to negotiate prices um, with drug companies, that would certainly make it a little bit uh, easier to stomach these these surging prices. Um, you know, uh, on your last podcast, you talked about the fact that, um, you know, aspirin bottle costs $60 when it costs, what, one cent to make. Um, and And then you also talked about um, if you pay uh, cash as opposed to using your insurance, you know, paying five hundred dollars versus I forgot your exact example, but three thousand dollars. I mean, th- those are significant differences. And if you look at um, the way insurance is handled, um, you know, unfortunately, we have this uh, bifurcated system where each state is kind of its own king, and we don't allow insurance companies to go across state lines. And certain uh, there are certain regulations involved around it. Now I'm not an expert on that. I'm sure you know a lot more than I do. But, um, you know, if I look at the statistics on on, on the Medicare uh, beneficiaries, um, the private Medicare plans have risen from 12.8% in 2004 to nearly 40% in 2020. So, I mean, think about that rise in private plans that are are then being put under the umbrella of Medicare. So you're seeing a lot of expenses roll through there. And a lot of this has to do with, uh, unfortunately, uh, administrative costs, right? I mean, if you look at uh, hospitals' bottom lines, the amount of money they spend on administrators is crazy. And then also, you know, I would love to see... um, uh, some reforms when it comes to being able to sue doctors and, and, you know, the, the legal system I don't think is, is one that, that, that protects, uh, um, uh, I, I, I think it's a huge drain on the system.
0: So let me see if I can kind of back up on that. So I, I hear you say means testing as an option. I hear you say drug price reform. As an option. And there's more to unpack there in just a second. And then I hear you say uh, tort reform.
1: So tort reform, exactly.
0: So on the drug testing, I mean on the, the drug issue, uh, I did a podcast with a guy who runs by the moniker of pharmacy stan, a really interesting guy. <laughs> and uh, one of the things he pointed out was the fact that we have all these oligopolies that have formed in different areas of the supply chain. So you got the drug manufacturers and there's some oligopolies there, and then you have the drug distributors, and there are oligopolies there, and there's cross-ownership between the, the the manufacturers, the distributors, and the TPAs, there's oligopolies, there are oligopolies there, and then the, the retail uh, entities, uh, pharmacies, and so there are oligopolies there, and so now all of a sudden, you have this cross-ownership, which then acts contrary to good pricing pressure. We have something called, uh, that Steve Daines, the senator from Montana passed, called Chiron. I did a podcast with Senator Daines a while back. Uh, CHIRA stands for the Competitive Health Insurance Reform Act, which is a very, very short law. It's something like one page. And what it did is it subjected uh, health insurance companies, which are regulated primarily by states, to federal antitrust laws. They've been exempted since the 50s under the McGarren Act. And so uh, one of the things that we might want to examine is another tool in the the toolbox is you know, the ability to examine their, or pursue some antitrust issues with regards to these overlaps. I'm going to throw something out. I recognize I'm catching you completely off guard with this. So <laughs> let's just play with the idea for a second. Um, when, when President uh, Johnson signed the Medicare Act into law, the average uh, person retired at about age 65. The, the life expectancy was only about two years after that. So, right. the time, so the time that the recipient uh, of the Medicare uh, got benefits was very short. Having said that, you correctly point out that the, the nation has made a promise to those paying into the system that they're going to get a benefit uh, in the future by virtue of their having paid into the system. Wouldn't another idea being to stagger the, the, the promise being made so that... 20 somethings have a promise that says, instead of the benefit beginning at age 65, it's gonna be, ben- it's going to be uh, projected retirement minus five or 10 or something like that. So you're saying, we're gonna get some, you know, we're gonna try and model this after something closer to the original design, which was a life expectancy of you know, less than five years after you retired. Um, it would encourage people to work longer, which we think is a good idea, um, because a lot of people die not long after they stop working because their energy levels, they don't have the structure and the energy and the, I mean, the drive to go do a bunch of stuff. It's not because they're not particularly useful to the economy, they're valuable people to the economy, they're important to the economy, and they have a lot to contribute. So have you thought about something like that, where maybe we're, we're tiering the benefits based on uh the age and when the the promise is made to the individual?
1: Yeah, I mean that uh, I've I've read about those um, ideas and it's um it's something that I'd really want to study because it would be incredibly complicated to put into practice, right? I mean, yep. what age do you I mean, you know I'm I'm 43. So do you say, okay, does the generation, my generation, are we the first ones, or do you go to the 20s, or do you say, or is it the people that haven't been born yet, right? So it's, it's, it's a it's a very complicated issue to unpack, but it is a reasonable one to think about because, yeah, people are living a lot longer um, and a lot more productive lives. I mean, the numbers were slightly skewed um, in the last census. I think this was the first time that white men average age actually went down, but I think that was due to the opioid crisis, um, because you had a lot of, you know, premature deaths of people in their 20s. But yes, that is certainly something that is worth studying. um, Because when they set up the program, it had it it didn't look anything like it does now. As you mentioned earlier, this was a $10 billion program. And now it's 926 billion dollars. And as I mentioned in 1970, it was a 12th of benefits. Now it's half of the benefits. So um, the the problem that I really have is when I look at the solutions that are coming out of Washington is you're not seeing anything that's concrete. You're not seeing uh, anyone really taking a stand. And when the uh, trustees say, you know, the last four years, we're telling you we're going to run out of money in four years time uh, and the inaction is is really inexplicable. So it is going to take bold leadership. And certainly um, the things we've discussed earlier are, are, are going to be critical for that, because it's, it's going to have to be a multifaceted solution.
0: And you're right. It is a, a bit of a Gordian knot. Um you know, again, life expectancy was probably something around 67, 68 years old in 1965. Today, it's, for males, it's 78 years old and for females, it's 83 years old. And so your, your benefit time has expanded dramatically uh, and it, is, it would be complicated to implement, but I, I, I'm not sure we have much of a choice. But I think your, your thinking is fresh on this. I mean, you're coming about it from a new perspective and you're gonna bring important uh, perspective to bear on, on the problem. And I think uh, you'll you'll bring a sense of urgency to the matter. I think one could assert this is almost a breach of fiduciary duty on the part of lawmakers not to address this problem now. We've got to get our our arms around it. I don't know what happens. I don't know how you solve the problem in in 2026 if you don't start working on it today. Printing money seems to be now time-honored, but uh, is not a good idea as a way of solving problems in the future. And I certainly don't recommend it for solving the problem in 2026.
1: No, I mean, if you look at the inflation we're going through right now, it's unprecedented, right? And a lot of that just has to do with the fact that the federal government has been printing money like they've never had before. Um, But the trends, you know, in Medicare expenses are pretty shocking the fact that in 2020 there was a 60 billion dollar cost overrun um you know and that is that's up from 5 billion in 2019 and only 1.6 billion in 2018 and we actually did run a surplus um in 2016 and 2017 so you know but it's been accelerating and and the the economy has changed dramatically. Um, as we all know, COVID has changed everybody's lives and has made people rethink. And so I'm worried that these numbers are gonna accelerate even further and, and faster over the next few years. So are your constituents worried about this? Are
0: they thinking about this? Are you having conversations with people in the field about this? Uh,
1: you know, I, 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 wish, I wish this was the case. It, it's, it's almost as if nobody's paying attention. Um, I don't. And to me, it feels as though neither side, you know, either the Democrats or Republicans wants to take on this issue. Um, you know, we can see this freight train coming at us. Um, you know, I was at a, a talk yesterday in central Oregon and we sat around and, and they, they said, OK, what are the most important issues to you? And 20 issues were listed. This was not listed. You know, it's it's as if you know it's 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 not relevant. You know, and literally, we're so far down the list of, and this is these are very active political people who care deeply about the country, and Medicare did not come across anyone's lips. So it's it's as if you know. I mean, and I'm glad that we're doing this because you are drawing attention to it, but. It's as if, you know, you're screaming from the rooftops, and I'm sure a lot of people are, but none of the voters are paying attention. It would seem to be both apt and,
0: and incredibly inappropriate to put the old question about, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there, right? Yeah, or, or, no. Or Oregonian, it, it happens all the time. Yeah, Well,
1: well I mean, it, and, and listen, I don't expect people to read the, the trustees report, but the numbers that we've outlined and, you know how quickly the funds have been disappearing has been, is really shocking. Um, and it's not like, you know, we're, I'm quoting numbers in 2045, 2095. That's very abstract. It's very hard to get your, your head around that. 2026. 20 yeah. That's a cycle yeah. away. I, I mean, we're, we're literally talking about uh, from when someone's kid enters high school to graduation. I mean, that, that's not that far away. You know, four years is going to be honest really soon. And, and you know, it, it's, it seems irresponsible of the federal government not to deal with the issue. And I'm just hoping that, that more people will start paying attention um, because this is a critical issue. And it's been bearing down on us now for years. Um, and uh, un- unfortunately, there aren't any clear solutions, but I'm hoping... This is one issue where where both sides of the aisle can get together and, and make some hard compromises.
0: Well, America has one thing going for it, many things going for it, but one thing in particular, we have no, no shortage of really smart people and really industrious people. Um, and we are a very clever nation that can solve problems once we get inspired to do so. So the question is, how do we catalyze the nation to get their arms around this problem? Is the census of Oregon consistent with the census of the United States, or is it younger or older, or how does that map out? Uh, we ha- and, and we more do specifically have a slight... with regard to your
1: And more specifically with regard to your district. Um, well, so my district is is fairly average when it comes to age. Um, we have, it's, it's, it's actually a great breakdown of America. We have um, 25% of the population lives in the county, which is in the mountains, um, which is very dependent on, um, tourism and skiing and fishing. Um, we have um, two counties which are very rural, which are farm counties, and then 40% of the population of my uh, district is in Portland proper or just outside of Portland. So it's a really interesting combination. It's 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 kind of a tiny. Uh, it looks a little bit like America in general. So you, you get a little piece of, of of three very distinct and very different regions, um, which have. Have, which have very, um, you know, they care about very different issues. But you know, this is one of those issues that all three types of um, counties should really care about um, because it affects um, our seniors um, and, and it affects uh, the federal government. So you have uh, rural, urban stratification, and you
0: also have socioeconomic stratification. Um, what? If that's the case, if it if it is kind of a, a a bit of a microcosm of the of the United States, then that means that roughly 20 percent of your population would be in the age category that cares about the Medicare issue. Is that correct? Is about that right?
1: That's about right. Yeah. No. I mean, we. Um, you know, the the one aspect of my district that doesn't mirror the United States is. Um, we, we don't have a very large uh, minority population, so um, it's about ten percent Hispanic um, and then about ninety percent uh, white. There, you know, there's uh, one or two percent uh, Asian American and um, and African American. But uh, for the most part, uh, we do mirror on on most other aspects. We do have very wealthy parts of the district. Um, we have uh, uh, some 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 parts of the district that, that financially are not doing as well. So um, it really runs the gambit. Um, and, it, and it is hard to find issues that everyone can can really focus on because the mountain region is very different from Portland. Portland region is very different from the farming region. So um, it, it's it's a fascinating district. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're going to be able to connect with issues like this. Um, but I just want people to pay attention to it. Um, which is, which is hard. It's hard to get people to pay attention when, you know, you have issues like law and order and people care deeply about the economy. Um, you know, unfortunately Oregon just found out that our largest employer, which is Intel decided to build, um, their next series of plants in Ohio, um, and they're going to spend 35 billion dollars building semiconductor plants in Ohio and they employ, you know, 22,000 Oregonians. They're the largest private employer in the state of Oregon. So, you know, there are um a lot of economic issues that are kind of front of mind and obviously, you know, the the law and order issues are really important for people right now with public safety.
0: So, one of the other issues that's been that I've uh, gotten a lot of attention on and spend a lot of time on is the issue of broadband and how it correlates both to education and then healthcare. Uh, the misunderstanding by many people is the fact that they believe that broadband is a function of socioeconomics. You know, people can't afford it. When in fact, oh, I'm sorry, not that that it's that it's a socio. I mean, a uh, rural-urban divide issue. I mean, p- people in rural areas can get it. Not that people can't afford it. The reality is that both are a case, and it seems to me like that's a, an issue you know, spot on for you. You probably have both issues in your district where you've got both people who can't afford it and, uh, and where it's not available because of the, the rural nature of the, and the mountainous nature of the, of the uh, community. One of the things that we found, I did a microeconomic research report here in Dallas where um, I was stunned to conclude that uh, over 30% of Dallas County residents pay More than three percent of their after-tax income for access to broadband, which sounds like it's not a whole lot, but it's a lot uh, when you think there's more than they pay for education. But what's really damning is the fact that that's to get access to the 2010 standard of broadband. In other words, that's four meg down and one meg up. That's incredibly slow. You can't host. We couldn't be doing this uh, Zoom call, this podcast right now in that kind of environment because there'd be insufficient bandwidth you know, you, you can't even imagine trying to do telemedicine or telehealth or trying to do, uh, you know, remote schooling in those circumstances. Um, is that an issue that your, your constituents are looking at as well?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, Greg Walden, who I tried to uh, replace in the U.S. House, was a huge proponent of, of rural broadband and, and actually helped lead the passage of some really significant bills. Um, but I think, as you said, in Dallas, you know what we've seen out of the school system um, is is how critical it is to have um, to have high speed broadband because, uh, you know, sadly Oregon over the last uh, thirty years has dropped significantly in its rankings of schools. Um, you know we're in the bottom five in, in in a lot of categories unfortunately, and the COVID epidemic has just. Uh, made the separation between the haves and the have nots even more significant because um, the people with, with great technology at home and high speed and in schools, you know, especially in private schools versus public schools, um, the, the difference in hours learned is, has been significant. I have a good friend whose son uh, in 2020 was only going to school for uh, you know, 20 minutes a week um, in central, in, in, in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Whereas, um, I know, uh, I've had other friends that their kids were going for five hours a day. And if you think about what, how, what, how the gap that, that um, it's uh, insurmountable. Creates it, yeah. Actually, yeah. And, and, you know, already it's hard enough and, you know, the studies bear out, um, the amount of school time and, and, um, uh, uh, there's a, there's a very interesting study talking about kindergarten and, and, and getting ahead early, how important that is for later in life. And, and the fact that rates um, uh, for income go up dramatically uh, uh, dealing with um, literally how much schooling you've had at an early, at an early part of your life. Um, and, and, Sadly, you know, this is just going to exacerbate that problem in Oregon, not not only in Oregon, but in Dallas and across the country. I mean, and I, and I think it happens in, in every in every um, area of, of, of the U.S. So
0: I, re- I heard a study the other day announced that said that uh, we've lost or young people have lost on the order of 17 trillion dollars of earning capacity because of this remote learning issue.
1: That's, I mean, it's it's shocking, you know, and... It's it's tragic, I mean, it's... Yeah, well, and I I, I think it's going to take years to study this problem, you know, because we don't really know um, the outcomes of, of not teaching for a year or two. But I think what we're going to see is over the course of the next couple of years, teachers are going to have to make up lessons that should have been taught years ago. And unfortunately, um, we're not going to see the outcomes of that for a long time, but clearly education levels, um, reflect off of income levels, um, when you're an adult, which, uh, also, uh, lead into, um, people spending time in jail. I mean, there are direct correlations be, between these things. And, and and it really hurts society, you know, if, if you're not able to teach. Um, and, and it, you know, in rural Oregon, you know, part of the major issue that we have um, is we've lost a lot of the, the foundational tax paying base because, um, you know, the timber business used to have, you know, in small towns, you'd have a factory, you'd have 2000 workers, they pay into the school system. And, you know, it's a small town, Oregon is almost like a microcosm of, of, say, Detroit or Pittsburgh, right? So in Pittsburgh in the early 80s, because the steel industry shut down, you lost a quarter of the population. So that's happening or has happened across rural Oregon. But it doesn't get the same amount of attention because when a town, you know, goes from 20,000 people down to 15,000 or 10,000, the economic impact on that town, it's almost impossible to survive if you're a small business owner or a restaurant owner. Um, but it doesn't get the attention that, you know, a city like Pittsburgh would get.
0: Yeah. This idea of scale doesn't work all together that, that favorably when you go down in scale versus up in scale. Um, right. So, when you were talking, the other you know, as you've been talking to your constituents and uh, stakeholders and leaders around town, what are the top three issues that they're focused on? I mean, we've we've hit on broadband, education, and healthcare, without breathing hard. What do they focus? And, and we've talked about the economy and inflation. What what are you really hearing from your constituents outside of that?
1: Well, uh, you know, law and order, um, especially in Portland. Um, you know, unfortunately. Portland was, pre-pandemic, considered the second most desirable city to live in in America. Um, Quality of life, you know, I lived on the East Coast for 20 years, and so all my friends would say, oh, we are so lucky to live in Portland. You know, we had unbelievable food and wine, and uh, the quality of life was top-notch. Unfortunately, I believe the last statistic I saw was we, we fell to 65 for um, best city to live in wow. in two years. So from two to 65. And, you know, and it, it, it's really sad. Um, I'm, I'm sitting in my old office um, in downtown Portland right now. And um, not far from me is the Bijou Cafe, which opened in um, uh, 42 years ago. And it closed um, because of the pandemic. And, you know, and it's just these small businesses. And once you know businesses start leaving downtown, um, it, it's very hard to stop uh, the, stop the slide. And so. You know, I think that this is a real issue for people. We need to get downtown Portland back up and running because even if you're from rural Oregon or you're from central Oregon, Portland is the largest city. I mean, Portland's basically 40% of the state's population. And so it's really important for Portland to be vibrant and and to get back to the way it was. And people have told me in the real estate business, they're worried it's going to take five years for it to get back. And, you know, if you go to the Apple store, In downtown Portland, there's literally a a 20 foot fence um, that that surrounds it because they had their windows smashed in during the riots and those windows cost you know. A million dollars a piece because they're three-story windows, and there, you know, oh, it's in, there's only one factory in the world that produces it. So, it's really important to bring back um, a sense that that it's safe in, in downtown Portland, um, and we need to give confidence back to the police department. Um, you know, they've been trying to rehire, thankfully. Um, a bunch of retired officers or officers that quit they offered 82 positions um, and unfortunately only two of the 82 officers would even have a conversation about coming back on the police force holy cow Um, you know yeah i mean our police force has gone from a thousand people down to 600 high 600s and Uh, You know, and unfortunately, because um, the local politicians don't back the police force, nobody wants to work there. Um, And so, you know, we had a break in in our building and our ground floor tenants. um, The alarm went off at two in the morning. They got there at 2.15. The police didn't arrive until six in the morning. Um, And they just said, listen, there isn't an active robber we don't have enough manpower to even come and deal with your situation. So, yeah, it's, it's sad. It's really sad what's happened to Portland. And, you know, it's it, it really gets down to fundamentals of you, you can't allow people to just be lawless. Um, you know, we had 120 days of rioting. And, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're still feeling the effects of that a couple of years later.
0: So as a, federal, a federally elected official, you know, you're elected to federal office. Um, how would you coordinate then with local officials to make sure that Portland has an opportunity to get it back on its feet as quickly as possible and how the residents of Portland and the other residents in your district can get back on their feet as quickly as possible and have a quality of life that they once used to consider normal and now considered dreamlike.
1: It's hard. It's going to take a lot of hard work. You know, unfortunately the momentum of you know, when cities start sliding, it's very hard to, to make it turn around. But I think from the federal level, what you can do is you can bring resources. Um, and, uh, you know, as a Republican, I, I, I think almost anyone out there would would say that um, the House of Representatives is going to flip to Republican control. And if Oregon only has one Republican, uh, Cliff Benz currently represents Eastern Oregon. If we only have one Republican, the, there will be a lot less pull for the state, whereas if we had two or perhaps even three or four, that would dramatically increase our input into bills and into spending. Um, and it's important to have balance in in, in your federal representatives. Because if, you know, the federal government switches back and forth between parties all the time, and if you can only have input when when one party's in control, that that doesn't help your citizens. So, And I think having a, a politician that represents part of Portland really stand up. And say hey you know i i I believe that the police are doing uh the best job that they possibly can that that means a lot and and you know building that confidence back is important um you know when you have members of uh the city council that are going out and and saying that the police force was throwing molotov cocktails Plainclothes police officers were doing that and trying to start riots. You know that's that's not healthy and 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 it really uh, hurts the morale of the police force.
0: It, well, it's likely irresponsible as well. I mean, just without knowing more. So um, what I hear you say is that a part of this is a cultural issue where uh, creating a sense of cultural support and community support for the police force that starts with leadership and goes throughout the community finds its way in further support through financial support. Um, I, I, It seems to me that there's another thing that um, may be valuable here too, which is you're likely to have a lot more visibility to the resources that would be available from the federal government that most people don't realize are available. I'm gonna give you an example. Um, FEMA does a fantastic job with helping communities Recover from natural and man made disasters. One of the things that's challenging for the communities is a lot of communities, small communities, don't have the scale or administrative staff to go fill out the applications to get the money from FEMA. At the same time, they have to raise some money, and that's hard as well. So I would imagine that, and as a result of that, FEMA has tens of billions of dollars of allocated but unspent money on his balance sheet because it was allocated for certain recipients, but the recipients didn't know how to go get it. And so it stays on the balance sheet because Congress has the power of the purse and they've allocated it. So I would imagine that you'd also have the ability to do that where you have not only just the ability to see into what is available, but also I think you're uniquely gifted given your background to understand, to have the financial understanding Of how to go make things work and to help culturally empower people by standing up as a leader and saying, hey, we got to wrap our our arms around uh, folks and not only create a big economic bear hug around the community, but also create a big cultural bear hug around the police force who need our support.
1: No, absolutely. And, you know, FEMA is critical in Oregon because we're averaging about a million acres of forest fire a year now. Um, And it's really sad. And in in my in the fifth congressional district, the Detroit area um, and Mill City area, a huge fire went through it two years ago. And today, unfortunately, there's still 700 people without homes. Um, And this is a very small community. These are two former um, big timber areas. And, uh, you know, when I read something like that, that 700 people still own homes, it's shocking. And unfortunately, because of inflation and and construction costs have now gone up 25%. So it's becoming almost undoable for people to rebuild their homes through the insurance um, that they had on their homes. And so something that the federal government, just like you pointed out with FEMA supporting these homeowners, you know, getting back in their dwellings is, you know, that that is something that the federal government is directly responsible for. And that is something I, I wouldn't be able to do as a representative.
0: Well, and it goes a step further, which is, you know, you're touching on another very, very central issue to the human experience, which is hope. You know, yep. If you if you're without a home after many many years and you don't know when it's going to come, you know, sooner or later, you know, God forbid, you give up hope that that you can get yeah. your way back, um, and that's hard. Yeah,
1: I mean it's unfortunately these communities just you know they keep getting gut punch after gut punch. You know when, as I was talking about before, you know when you lose your mill and you lose all these you know working. Um, blue collar, you know, strong wage jobs um, and they're not replaced with anything. And then all of a sudden a fire comes through, uh, you know, 10, 15 years later. Um, It's very hard for these communities to rebuild. Um, And, you know, Detroit, for example, there were almost every building and every home was destroyed in the city. And it's really sad to see. Um, And yes, at the end of the day, I mean, that's what, you know, that's what makes America one of the best countries in the world No, it's. Sorry, the best country in the world, because we do give people the opportunity to pull themselves up and 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 really get ahead. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, you know, if things happen that are out of your control, um, for example, not being able to go to school, um, if your home destroyed by fire. Uh, it, it's very hard to recover from this. And, and this will impact generations. Um, and, you know, that's that's one thing that I think that the federal government should be doing a lot of and stepping in for the state of Oregon is, you know, higher education. Um, you know, because higher education at the end of the day leads to a lot of opportunities. And unfortunately, Oregon has severely underfunded its universities. Um, and we should have more Pell Grants, which I think are phenomenal, um, to help allow people uh, without opportunity to get a college education because if someone goes to college for the first time in a family, that literally will affect generations after them.
0: So what I'm hearing you describe is a vision of the future that includes um, an economically strong set of communities that comprise a state or that, that make up a state that is also economically strong, one where the communities are also safe for people to walk around with, walk around in, and raise their families in, and to some extent, um, agile, meaning it's capable of being you know, because of the educational nature of its workforce or the educated nature of its workforce, that it can be responsive to the changing dynamics of economic needs and and uh, and business needs uh, across across the state. Um, and that you want to be a bridge, not only as a leader locally, but also as a bridge to the resources available from the federal government. That's my synthesis of what what I hear you saying. Is, have I missed something or have I overstated
1: anything? No. And, you know, I think more now than ever, I think people are looking for a change in leadership in Oregon. Um, there was a poll that the Portland Business um, Alliance just came out with and this is a shocking number, but they said that 88% of respondents did not think that Portland was going in the right direction. I mean, I've never seen a poll like that. I mean, that's those are almost Afghanistan like numbers, um, you know, clearly, Afghanistan has is a totally different kettle of fish, but I mean, those are numbers where people are kind of giving up on a city. And it's very hard to turn that around. And it's going to take bold leadership and it's going to take people with new ideas. And And I think that this is a time um, where, where someone like myself, who, who's not a politician, has an opportunity to run um, and with a business background and some common sense and can hopefully get some things done. Well,
0: I, I really sense a, a fresh perspective and a very uh, capable intellect being applied to these problems and a great deal of leadership that you can bring to the, bring to the table. I'm, I'm really, first of all, I'm, I'm grateful that you would spend time with me on this humble little podcast, but uh, really, I, I applaud your efforts and really think you're going to do a fantastic job. I, I'm, so, I'm very confident you're going to make the rounds in, in Oregon and uh, visit probably every community there is to visit. Um, uh, so you're gonna wear out a bunch of shoes. Uh, thank goodness Nike's nearby.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. You know, it's it's really important that people like you care about issues um, because unfortunately, not enough people are paying attention to this uh, crisis that we're having in Medicare. I mean, these numbers are stark. and if if people in Washington don't start paying attention, if people like you, aren't drawing this huge megaphone to these uh, issues, then they're not going to get solved. So thank you for your hard work. It really matters a lot.
0: Well, I'm going to reach out to you again, and I'm going to have you back if you'll, if you'll join me. And I'm going to hear about uh, an update. And also, I want to hear uh, sometime in the, in the mid-first year of your first term, how it's going.
1: Absolutely. If I get elected, I, I will be there whenever I can. So I look forward to it.
0: Great. Well thanks for joining us today Jimmy we we'll look forward to your success. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest visit wwwthe 60 or www.tfip.group